Over the past 12 years, many companies receive funding relatively easily. Uh, will this still be the case during the COVID-19 lockdown and the following recession? And will this result in a Darwinistic situation where only the fittest companies will survive? You're watching or listening to Business Podcast Groningen. My name is Misha Bush. And today I'm talking about this topic uh, with Bill Reichert, entrepreneur, venture capitalist, author and mentor, lecturer at the University of California and managing director and co-founder of Garage Technology Ventures. Bill, welcome to the show and thank you for being here. Thank you, Misha. I'm delighted to be here. Happy to be talking with you. Great. How are things for you right now regarding the uh, COVID-19 crisis and what has changed in the way you do business at the moment? So, uh, you know, like pretty much everybody else around the world, we have been driven to uh, overwhelmingly conducting our meetings via video conference as opposed to in person. Uh, and that has had a very interesting effect on the way we're doing business. And interestingly enough, in our world, you know, sort of, which is the world of, you know, what you would call knowledge workers, you know, sort of professional knowledge workers, we don't actually sort of make anything, we don't actually operate anything. So it's a very, you know, the in our world, it's all about, you know, conversations and communications. Yeah. Um, what we've found is that, interestingly, that this has probably improved productivity. So yes. it's a very sort of bizarre effect in the sense that, um, you know, we're not scheduling coffees or scheduling lunches or scheduling dinners, and we're not traveling through traffic to, you know, to meetings. And interestingly, it has absolutely, it has flattened the world of entrepreneurship. And so, you know, on any given day, I may, you know, I started this morning talking to Israel, um, to a company in Israel, and I ended last night talking to a company in Singapore. And, you know, and sort of everything in between, including Washington, D.C., and Boston, and Chicago, and even some companies here in Silicon Valley. Right. And so... The amazing thing is that um, I, it has narrowed the gap that between companies that are here in Silicon Valley and companies that are anywhere else in the world. Because when I talk to somebody in San Francisco, it's really no different than when I'm talking to somebody in Israel. Yeah. Um, and um, so that's kind of interesting. And it'll be interesting to see if that in fact plays out in terms of the way you know, the venture ecosystem flattens their bias, um, which is traditionally, you know, you want to invest in companies that are in the neighborhood, right? Right. Um, and now that you can't meet with them anyway, doesn't make that much difference. Do we really think it makes that that much difference? Yeah. So, um, so we'll see. Um, and so... That's, you know, for us in this, in, this, in, this, in this strange world, in terms of our portfolio companies, and in terms of our portfolio companies, pretty consistently, everybody is seeing at a minimum um, a slowing in the, in the speed at which they can do business. So this COVID thing has certainly thrown sand in the gears of getting things done um, where you have to initiate a relationship, you know, in a sales and marketing sense. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I, it just, just the processes have slowed down. And in particular, if you're talking about physical goods, um, <clears throat> you know, we're working with a company, they've got a technology that includes some hardware and, um, you know, it's just been very hard for them to send a, a sales engineer out with the hardware to go to a client to, you know, sit in a manufacturing setting and demonstrate the technology. So, right. <clears throat> so it slowed, it slowed those, those sorts of things down. So that's the flip <clears throat> side of, of uh, you being able to do meetings much more effective. Actually, when it comes yeah. to the more physical demonstrations, it's actually the opposite. 
effect. Yeah, it's definitely slowed that down. But then, <clears throat> excuse me, there is, there is a very interesting, it's, you know, unlike, unlike the, uh, you know, the meltdown 10 years ago or the, the global financial crisis, uh, depending on what you call it, um, you know, this is affecting different companies very, very differently, right? So yes. we're seeing we're seeing a bunch of companies um, <clears throat> at one end of the spectrum that are actually getting a boost from you know from this crisis, and um, and so almost you know in in many cases that's a temporary boost. One of the you know one of the examples is in logistics. So we've got a couple of companies uh, in our portfolio that are logistics companies. And they're going nuts, right? right because right. Um, there's been this phenomenon because of COVID. You've had a lot more delivery-oriented stuff. Yes. And you've also had this somewhat bizarre phenomenon that <clears throat> all the toilet paper in all of the warehouses around the world is being moved from warehouses into closets in, yeah. in garages, right? It's crazy. <laughs> you know, and... <laughs> So, you know, examples like that. And, and are you specifically investing in those type of short-term opportunities? Like <laughs> looking for companies in the- Toilet paper logistics, right? Not, not, not the toilet paper, <laughs> but, but like logistical no, no, no. <laughs> s- software, for example? No, I mean, our reality is, our reality is that the, you know, the way that, that the investment process goes in venture capital uh, um, is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's somewhat rarely, you know, sort of um, opportunistic at the weekly at the weekly level, right? Right. Um, so we have we have broad theses and mandates in terms of domains in which we're investing, and um, and what you know what has happened in this crisis is you know God bless entrepreneurs. What has happened is almost any company, any startup company that can create some, some sense of advantage from, from COVID um, has started pitching us on how, you know, our AI algorithms will help discover drugs that will cure COVID or right. our, you know, our um, medical technology that will help develop um, tests that will test for COVID. So there's been this this explosion of re-business plans and pitch decks that are sort of um, COVID-oriented, which, again, um, uh, I guess I understand why it's happening, but what the entrepreneurs don't appreciate is... Now, when a COVID pitch comes in, you know, we're just going, oh, you know, not another COVID pitch. Right. Not one of those. <laughs> and so because it is, you know, it's it's a significant, it's a hugely significant event. Um, it's not clearly cases a long term fundable venture investment thesis. And right. And so if you're an entrepreneur and you think you can gain some advantage from what's going on now, you know, just be careful that, um, a, you know, that, that from a venture point of view, it's going to be hard for venture investors to jump on those opportunities uh, or on your opportunity because we're actually getting overwhelmed right. by entrepreneurs who are pitching all these entrepreneurs, all these opportunities if you have if you have an opportunity in your customer base so if you can deliver something tomorrow that your customers will buy that is related to this interim interim crisis then that's fine you mm-hmm. know and we have those discussions with portfolio companies yeah um, about about the importance of being agile and nimble and being able to deliver value that customers need, right? Okay. So, um, but it doesn't make it a venture fundable thesis over the long term. Um, it just is a potentially very good survival strategy 
you know, given the dynamics of uh, of how the world has evolved. Yeah. And what would be the time frame that would make it uh, a particularly interesting uh, venture for you to say th these are um, uh, solutions, technical solutions, software solutions that do solve a problem, maybe more related to the the world that we will see after COVID? Uh, what would be a time frame that you that would make it interesting for you? Yeah. So clearly, sort of the world after COVID. Um, you know, one of the domains I mentioned is the whole domain of logistics. So in, you know, the world of logistics is, you know, it's, it is increasingly digital, but it is still, it is still relatively primitive. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so, you know, what we, what we can confidently predict is going to happen um, with this crisis is that everybody is going to be looking at their supply chains and trying to figure out, you know, is it not, not just, is it the most efficient that it can be, you know, is there a way we can, we can drive more efficiency into our supply chain so that, you know, we our, our order quantities and our timeframes and our costs and our paperwork and all that can be improved. Um, the other thing that's going to happen is, is people are going to be more, more focused on at a minimum second sourcing. Mm -hmm. What they're going to be looking at is this issue of, of resilience, right? Is my supply chain resilient? Where are the potential risks to my supply chain? Where are there sort of excessive dependencies that require that I have you know, a, I don't depend on one factory in China. Maybe I have a factory in China and one in Vietnam and one in Sri Lanka. I don't know, or whatever. Right. Or, you know, or one in Mexico or one in uh, Slovakia, right? Um, so uh, there is, um, there's going to be a whole bunch of work around, around, the, around the supply chain, which includes both planning as well as logistics associated with it. And that means things like making sure everything in your supply chain is instrumented and that you have the most current data on where everything is. So that as soon as an event occurs that, you know, a, a typhoon in Southeast Asia that is going to disrupt your supply of of memory chips, whatever, right? I mean, so yeah. you're gonna want to you're gonna want to be able to have you know the potential for alternative supplies, and be able to be responsive, so that you can be faster than anyone else, or at least not slower than anyone else, at making sure that your supply chain remains resilient. So that's a massive part of the global economy, yeah. right? Um, yeah and um, involves a whole bunch of prosaic stuff like, you know, um, uh, you know um, uh, the, whole, the whole brokerage and bill of lading and, um, you know, port, uh, you know, the processes that go on at ports. Um, you know, the, it was, uh, uh, I got to admit, I had a, um, I had a, a, a just eye-opening meeting with uh, a team of executives from Maersk. So, you know, Maersk, the shipping yeah, company. Yeah, right. Yes. And, um, you know, we don't pay, generally, we don't pay that much attention to things like container ships, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, we sort of assume that they're going to, and... And, and so Maersk, you know, great, you know, wonderful, huge, you know, uh, historically successful company. And I met with them and I asked them to give me sort of their, their, their thesis on uh, um, technological innovation and digitization and, and all that sort of thing. Um, and they led, they led off by saying, you know, we're Maersk, we are the lifeblood of global commerce and some huge percentage of the global economy, you know, is dependent upon Maersk. 
in terms of you know what they ship around the world and you go oh my god right i mean you know we techies in our little tech hubs um you know sort of dismiss that part of the world as being yeah that's the legacy boring yeah, you know, part of the world but it is you know is ripe for innovation and opportunity and for you know uh new technologies yeah. to make the um to make things more efficient and to make them more resilient and so right. i think you know we're we're you know these crises wake us up to those opportunities right do you think it takes a, a, a special type of entrepreneur to identify those well, let's say less sexy opportunities in, in fields such as uh, shipping and, and global mm -hmm. distribution? Well, it's a, it's a special type of entrepreneur. I mean, I don't think there, it's, I don't think it's a DNA thing. I think it's a, um, it's a, you know, it's, it, 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 it is a mindset thing in the sense that, um, uh, you have to, you know, it's a combination of mindset and experience. Um, you have to have the open mindset that is constantly curious about, you know, how can we make this a better world? And, you know, considering and, and has this awareness that, that what, what affects our experience of life in the world includes a whole bunch of boring prosaic things as yeah. well as, you know, sort of the exciting gadget stuff, right? You know, our smartphone, right? Um, and, um, and so, but, but you need, you need to have had that exposure to the, to the fact that, that these, you know, big, ugly, rusting container ships, and I don't mean to cast aspersions, <laughs> you know, are core to our experience, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. Um, and we ignore them. Um, but, but when you, I mean, so, you know, we got, we've been pitched by, I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of, it's sort of crazy, but, um, you know, you it, it goes back to when you were a kid playing with blocks, um, and uh, or Legos or Connects or whatever you were playing with. Um, I, you know, you're at a port, at a port handling container ships. You've got these container ships with thousands of containers coming off the container ship, and you know what you want to do is you want to pick them up and put them down as fast as you can. Because the guy in the crane who's picking them up and putting them down has paid a lot of money. Um, right. And sitting there at the dock, you know, you're burning a lot of money taking up that dock space. And so you're trying to, you know, picking them. And, uh, but exactly, you know, how do you figure out where to put each container? So it turns out, you know, there's an immense amount of, of mathematics involved in optimizing where you put each container because each container is only going to go on one truck yeah. and, and, and that truck has a destination. And so mapping each container to the truck and its destination and optimizing blah, blah, blah. It's, there's, you know, there's just a lot of math involved potentially that can create a ton of value. You can get that implemented in place. Right. So it's just extraordinarily exciting to see how many corners of our life are, 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 are open to the possibility of improvement through technology. And, right. you know, so I'm getting, I'm getting, you know, kind of worked up about, yeah, yeah. <laughs> about container ships. No, um, but it's, it's a, a very crazy, in, but... interesting example, <laughs> but, but yeah. do, how do you, yeah. how would you suggest uh, startups and entrepreneurs to explore these opportunities? Cause I guess also the container space, it's something you need to really get into to really identify the opportunities, understand the processes. And um, right. and perhaps for the average entrepreneur, he's looking at different spaces and sectors. What would you suge suggest to somebody to, as a maybe a framework to explore these type of opportunities? Yeah, so, you know, there are, I we have come across entrepreneurs 
who have approached um, sort of opportunity analysis in a sort of systematic way. Um, a, a couple of entrepreneurs who they met at Google and they decided they wanted to start their own company and they spent a bunch of time um, in front of whiteboards sort of thinking through sort of, you know, all the pieces of the world that possibly mm -hmm. um, some, you know, combination of digitization and maybe novel device or product and maybe, you right. know, application, blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, and so it's a big job. It's, it's rare. I mean, there are not a lot of examples of companies that happen that way, right? If you think about the, um, the entrepreneur journey. So one of my colleagues at Berkeley, um, you know, talks about the different entrepreneur journeys and, um, you know, usually, and my own personal experience, um, you know, I started my first company when I was a graduate student at Stanford, um, pretty much by accident. You know, I mean, I did not go to Stanford to become an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Um, I had very different thoughts. Um, and, um, but I happened to be doing a project with a venture guy, um, and a buddy of mine. And while we were doing this project, we identified this sort of gap in the world, this white space. And I made this casual comment about, you know, somebody should fix this. Um, and the VC overheard me saying that. And he said, why don't you do it, Bill? I said, no, no, I got, I'm doing other stuff. And he said, no, I mean, why not? Yeah. And so that's how I became an entrepreneur. I mean, it was, I had, I, I had no intention, but it was sort of, you know, and arguably I did not have an open mind, right? Arguably I had a closed mind. Yeah. <laughs> and it was the VC, somewhat ironically, I don't know. It was the VC who opened my mind and said, no, Bill, you guys, you should go do this. Um, so there is, you know, usually, usually it's this, it's this, this mindset and skill set meets or bumps into an opportunity and sees it as such. And, uh, you know, and that's how things happen, right? right. Mark yeah. Zuckerberg, um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, there was, so when I went, when I went to Harvard, <clears throat> every freshman at Harvard gets a physical book called the Facebook of all of your classmates, um, all of your classmates, right? And so it's a, you know, when I went, obviously, it was a long time ago, right? Um, so we all got, you know, when we got to school, we all got this, we got, we, we all got the Facebook. Um, and so time passes, the internet, you know, it becomes the World Wide Web. It's stunning that it took until 2004 before they digitized the Facebook. But yeah. basically, basically, Looking you know, back. Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg said, hey, um, you know, why don't we turn this into a dynamic space rather than just a brochure? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. And so it was almost obvious. It was almost obvious. I mean, he certainly didn't invent. They didn't invent a social network. Right. I mean, there were social networks long before Facebook. Yeah. Um, but it was sort of this combination of mindset, skill set, they could code, um, and opportunity, and making it happen. Right. Um, you know, the other side of it is, the, you know, the other entrepreneur journey is, is the, um, uh, you know, the... Um, the team that has, you know, discovered, um, you know, what's the, what's the, um, uh, you know, the Cisco, the Cisco example, right? Where the team actually creates a new product um, to solve a problem. And then based on that launches a company as opposed right. to, as opposed to, 
um, seeing an opportunity and, 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 and building a company. So there are, but it's interesting how that's relatively few successful companies have actually come from, um, yeah. if you think about it. Um, that's very interesting. So you think, about, you think about all of the successful companies in Silicon Valley, um, can you name, uh, you know, I, I, I gave it away with, uh, with um, the Cisco example, but can you name another successful company in Silicon Valley whose success is based upon a product or technology that they invented? Right. It's jumping on existing technology or, or infrastructure usually. And, right. And it's how really is it? really hard. How I mean, is it for you right now? Like you, not as an entrepreneur necessarily, but as yeah. uh, from within your company, as a venture capitalist, uh, when you look at um, businesses to potentially partner up with, do you have some kind of framework where you identify market opportunities and what it's going towards and then look, okay, I want certain companies that fit with those com opportunities that I have already um, identified? Um, okay. So dirty little secret. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, pretty much every VC, you know, claims to have some sort of investment thesis because the only way you can raise money from limited partners is to have an investment thesis. Mm -hmm. Um, so, I mean, you can't go to institutions and say, can you commit $10 to my fund. And they say, well, you know, tell me, what are you going to invest in? And uh, you can't say, well, you know, if it looks good, maybe we'll invest in, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. You can't say that, right? Yeah. You've got to have an investment thesis, right? Um, so generally investment investment thesis is around some, you know, <clears throat> set of domains that are either market sectors or technologies. Um, and so, you know, we have, so with, um, with, um, with, I don't know if you mentioned or saw that, um, in addition to Garage Technology Ventures, we are affiliated with a, a global fund called Pegasus Tech Ventures. So I'm a partner at Pegasus Tech Ventures, which is a sort of big global fund. Mm -hmm. Um, and the Pegasus model is to work with their LPs to identify sectors where the LPs can add value to the portfolio companies. Yeah. And so, and so we spend time with the LPs saying, you know, what sectors do you think are going to be important to you over a, over a horizon? So every, every corporation has got to do this work of having, you know, some point of view about sort of um, critical strategic sectors and technologies. So we take that work and we, you know, within Pegasus, we say, okay, let's use this as a filter for identifying companies that are interesting. You know, having said that, these frameworks are almost always, you know, relatively general. Yeah. Um, so 5G, 5G is probably important, IoT. IOT seems to be important. Yeah. Um, you know, AI, you know, obviously that's important. Robotics, those are, those are relevant. You know, autonomy, it's a type of AI. Um, smart cities, that's an IOT meets AI, whatever. So there's all of these sort of frameworks of, of um, domains of markets and market sectors and technologies, but you can't, I mean, and, and so we're sort of, we use those as filters. If somebody comes in with, um, you know, an app to help Zoomers figure out where they want to go for drinks after work, um, yeah, you know, okay, fine. That's not gonna, that's not gonna fit our filter, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but you want to uh, keep it a bit yeah. broad so that you don't miss out on opportunities or... Right. And so it's, um, you know, it's, 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 it's just, it's impossible 
to stay on top of all the emerging technologies that are out there to have a, you know, a very specific um, uh, target list. And then within a, within a sector target list, um, you've got all the diversity associated with the team of entrepreneurs that are going after it. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so we have, you know, sort of these filters that help us focus, but it, it, it's their, their, um, the, the business of actually looking at a company and then deciding whether to invest in it, um, pretty much all of that other stuff, once you get to that level, the other stuff is thrown out and you're in an entirely different domain of, of doing an analysis of a, of a company. Um, right. And so, you know, I have tried to be a, I have tried to sort of consistently remain open-minded uh, about, uh, about opportunities um, and, and avoid, you know, one of the things that I see happening, I see it with me, I see it with my, my colleagues, I see it in the world. We all have developed this coping mechanism for dealing with uncertainty and change. And that coping me mechanism is to have certain fixed points of view, which sometimes can be referred to as biases <laughs> about the way the world, you know, should be, is, could be, um, and the way other people should behave, right? Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. what's the right thing to do, right? Um, so we've, we've created all of these structures in the way we see the world that makes it easier to cope. Because if you had to revisit all of your beliefs, sort of every time you made a decision, you could never make a decision. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's a very, very functional way to design the brain. Um, but it has the tendency to cause you to dismiss things out of hand that, you know, may be novel in a way that is going to be a paradigm shift. And so this is the, you know, this is the classic problem with innovation is that there is almost no innovation that people come up with that bunches and bunches of people don't say, oh yeah, we could do that. Or, oh, we tried that before. Oh yeah, that's never gonna work, right? I mean, <laughs> that's the way the human brain is constructed. And so the challenge for entrepreneurs, the challenge for entrepreneurs is to be able to come up with a framing of their innovation that preempts these natural biases that humans automatically have to that are, I mean, believe it or not, I mean, even though we're in Silicon Valley and even though we're in the business of innovation, every human being has these natural biases that work against novelty and innovation um, because we have to, right? Um, so, so as an entrepreneur, you've got to figure out how can I frame this innovation to overcome those natural biases? And so, you know, we are what, you know, an example we're working on right now is a company that has, uh, I'm not sure if I want to talk about it. Right. Okay, let me frame it. Okay, a company has a, a, a novel way of screening for breast cancer. Um, and so it turns out that this novel way of screening for breast cancer takes advantage of some technologies that have been known for several years um, and have been tried in different ways before. But this company is putting together this combination of technologies that has not been put together, that has not been put together before. And, and, and so there's, you know, the challenge that they've got is because, you know, um, doctors, physicians are way up there in terms of, uh, you know, as smart as they may be or whatever, Doctors, again, out of necessity, 
have these frameworks in their head as to what works and what doesn't work, what's worth spending time on, what's not worth spending. And so there's an, there tends to be this natural resistance to new approaches, believe it or not. I mean, yeah. there's a natural resistance to new approaches. And these guys have got to figure out how to get above it. Now, you know, they've, so they, it's turned out it has taken them years of peer-reviewed paper and clinical studies and trials to break through this bias. Um, and it's an extraordinary story. It's an extraordinary, and I think it could be, it could be, you know, disruptive to the entire, you know, breast cancer screening, you know, um, uh, industry. And we'll see, we'll see, I don't know. Right. I mean, and so on the one hand, it's very exciting to see the results of this work and its potential for, you know, saving lives. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's very exciting. On the other hand, as an investor, we've got to, you know, we've got to take into, into account that there's a lot of sand in the gears that makes it hard for something that may be truly valuable and truly innovative um, to get through the system. Right. Um, so that's, you know, it's real work that takes real time and real money. And so our challenge as investors is, you know, we want to see this future that this company is painting with this novel technology. Um, and, you know, but are we confident that, that we can get a syndicate of investors around the table that have enough money, enough patience, enough time to help this team break through all the things they've got to break through in order for them to become a standard of care. Yeah. So, so, you know, that that's independent of an investment thesis of, you know, sort of predicting the future. It's the nitty gritty of what it takes to launch and scale a company. Yeah. That, that's super interesting point. <laughs> and I guess that, that uh, very much connects to what you said earlier about not investing in short-term opportunities, but looking at something that that can add value long-term. Um, one of the you talked about the uh, the necessity of having to focus on certain areas, and at the same time, of course, staying open-minded for something mm -hmm. outside of there or, or keeping it not too uh, specific. One of the sectors you focus on is clean technology. And a lot of countries right now are talking about using or using, but that, that COVID, the COVID crisis might be a moment uh, to accelerate change with regards to environmental issues. For example, a big part of the EU recovery funds uh, need to be focused on the European Green Deal. Um, what are your thoughts on this? Do you think these kind of disruptive times that we see right now can create major technological breakthroughs uh, with regards to clean tech? Well, I, you know, I don't think the disruption is going to drive breakthroughs. I think the disruption could drive some, some infrastructure investment that will drive, that will drive um, adoption of some of these technologies. Right. Um, and, and, and so it, 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 you know, there's, there is a lot of hope that 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 you know the the um uh the application of bailout funds right so so you know we're going to have to run these massive fiscal deficits um over this you know period of time in order to keep the wheels of commerce moving um and so how those massive de fiscal deficits get deployed is going to be you know, a huge issue. Mm -hmm. I think that um, the, um, the, you know, the evidence, the evidence shows that during the, after the global financial crisis, that the application of funds toward renewables more than paid for itself. That, you know, there were a bunch of programs in the United States. I don't know as much about Europe in terms of what the analysis was. 
but there was um, there was a, a you know sizable program here in the United States called the ARPA E Fund, um, and uh, I, and all of the data suggests that that was you know that was money well spent, um, mm -hmm. you know unlike uh, you know it's a wholly different thing, but unlike giving everybody a check, um, you know to keep them afloat. Having some targeted, some targeted funding for promising, for promising commercial uh, developments, um, you know, it seems like you know it can work. So you may or may not appreciate in the United States, there's still a strong skepticism toward what is broadly referred to as industrial policy, right? Mm -hmm. So. We, you know, we sort of accuse the Europeans of being much more socialistic and much more sort of focused on trying to do industrial policy. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's a whole different, that's <laughs> a whole different debate. But, you know, we all do it. We all do it. It's just a matter of degree. You know, the United States has a massive, massive industrial policy program, which we don't call industrial policy, but it's our defense budget. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. um, and that swamps anything the Europeans have ever done. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, but um, but, you know, we 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 hesitate when it comes to anything that suggests that the federal government should try to pick winners at the commercial level. You know, having said that, having said that, there are a whole bunch of emerging technologies that now have emerged that are now clearly commercially viable um, in the renewable energy space. Um, and then there are some that have not yet become very commercially viable, but are on the cusp, that are on the cusp. So, you know, storage, storage is still not, um, is still not very economic. Um, and, but, you know, we're getting there, we're getting there. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of other sort of sustainable, renewable, there's a whole bunch of other sectors outside of what is generally thought of as clean tech. When we talk about clean tech, we, you know, for we, we largely we think about things like, um, you know, solar energy and wind energy and, you know, sort of other sources of energy that are not fossil, fossil fuels, hence yeah. the term clean tech, but in a much broader sort of material science, um, sustainability, in a sort of economic viability sense. There are a whole bunch of, of very interesting technologies that have come out of that industry um, that have, you know, very, very interesting, you know, economic applications um, that I don't think are going to be necessarily driven by the crisis, but um, it certainly it certainly makes sense um, I, you know, I'm so a lot of the, you know, sort of clean tech bleeds into smart cities, mm -hmm. right? Because, you know, the idea of smart cities, one of the ideas of smart cities and then smart buildings is to be more efficient. And one of the values of being more efficient is that you use less energy. And if you use less energy, you reduce carbon and all that sort of stuff. So clean tech has blended into a whole bunch of other sectors beyond energy production. Um, and so to the extent that we can instrument our cities and our buildings to, um, to be more efficient, then you're going to save money over the long term, right? right? So it's, you know, it's the type of investment that, you know, pays dividends as opposed, again, to just simply giving away money. So if you know, so what I'm hoping to your question, what I'm hoping is that we figure out all of our governments figure out ways to in a in a in a as efficient as possible approach, allocate some of this deficit spending toward investing in technologies in infrastructure, you know, in in instrumenting our world so that we can operate more efficiently in the future and then save money and recover those investments over time. Right. So, yeah. 
you know, that was a very sort of broad, generic way of, of answering of answering your question. I don't know, you know, I mean, the problem is when you start calculating sort of jobs created, politicians focus on jobs created. Mm -hmm. And that makes sense. I understand why they do that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's just so hard. It's, 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 you can create a lot more jobs digging ditches than you can instrumenting your city. Yeah. And, um, you know, so if jobs created is your metric of success, you're not going to put the money in the best place. And so, exactly. you know, we need, we need some balance between the politics of deficit spending, you know, and the economics of deficit spending to get us to put our money into projects that are going to make the most sense over the long term. Right. What are one or two examples of projects that, that you see uh, potentially or that you are looking into uh, finding startups and, and entrepreneurs that potentially can, can solve some of the biggest uh, environmental challenges that we are seeing right now or that we're expecting over the coming decades? Yeah, you know, that's interesting. Um, I, so the... Um, I would say in a broad brush, well, we're, you know, it happens. Yeah. So this is the mind of a, the, the mind of a VC, the mind of a VC um, works in a sort of um, uh, quadratic sort of um, way, which is to say, which is to say our brain, you know, my brain is currently filled with, um, with, the projects that we're working on now. So there are, you know, we have a short list of roughly six, six companies that we're investigating and then a next tier yeah. of, of another 12 companies. So I've got 18 companies in my brain at any one time. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so then there's this incredible decay, right? So outside of what's on my short list, the second tier list, I could not, I, you know, it would be really hard um, without going back to my notes to name the next 12. Um, and then it would be almost impossible to name all the other companies that yeah. are sort yeah. of in our, you know, in our, in our broader pipeline. So it happens, Makes it happens sense. that one of the short list ones is a company that, um, that it turns out that uh, nobody has figured out how to recycle lithium batteries. Who knew, right? I mean, right. yeah, yeah. So, um, I, and so you can recover a little bit, you know, here and there. And, but basically, basically um, the way lithium ion batteries have been treated, you know, they're a relatively new and they're a relatively small percentage of all the batteries used. So just by bulk, um, that's an interesting question. I should ask, I should find out, but by bulk, you know, we're using more lead acid batteries still than we are using lithium ion batteries, but that's going to, you know, it, because again, 98% of all the cars on the planet are internal combustion and not electric. Right. Right. So, I mean, but pretty soon the bulk of lithium ion batteries is going to be significant and the, and the materials the materials used in them, which obviously includes lithium, but also cobalt and also nickel, which are not cheap um, and are not getting cheaper and, you know, are expensive and messy to mine. Um, and so it's, you know, this is not going to change the planet. You know, it's not going to, it's not going to save us from climate change or anything like that, mm -hmm. but it's a really, really interesting commercial opportunity in this sector that is exploding, you know, so the, the use of lithium ion batteries is exploding and, you know, really high confidence in those projections. And so a second order effect question is, what is, you know, is there an opportunity in the recycling of those batteries? And so there are a few companies out there that have come up with, um, you know, after a lot of hard work and research, have come up with some novel technologies for recycling those batteries. And, um, you know, that in some number of years, that could be a huge business 
depending upon who captures that business. Yeah. So that's, you know, so, you know, over the years we've, we have invested in, in, you know, in, in solar, in material science, in hydrogen in fuel cells in, um, uh, water, um, you know, so these are, these are sort of big topics, but the reality, the, re the reality for us is that in most cases, in most cases, <clears throat> our company is not going to, our company is not going to, is not going to change the world in the same way that you could argue, you know, Facebook had a global impact. Google, Google's had a global impact. Twitter even has had a global impact. Um, but it's really hard for um, uh, a, a clean tech company to have a global impact, but it's, it's easy. It's easy to see how they can be a highly successful investment. Right. And, and altogether, they, they form parts of a big puzzle, right? That do make those big changes possible. Right. So obviously the electrification of transportation, um, you know, Tesla is a you know has a lot of visibility in that domain yeah. but um you know in the grand scheme of things um it will be a you know it'll be a big player but it won't be making you know it won't be the company that makes the entire difference yeah right, right. Well, you know well, it is one of my big you know it's one of my it's one of my big regrets in in life that i had the opportunity to invest in tesla um way 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 back when <laughs> yeah 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 and 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 i thought i thought it was an insane invest i thought it was the i thought it was the cool it was i thought it was incredibly cool but i thought it was insane as an investment and um and you know so i had this i had this this conversation with a a fellow vc friend of mine and we were debating <clears throat> You know, Tesla was one of these companies we, we were both looking at. And um, and we were debating it as an investment. And, 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 and she was saying, well, you know, Bill, all they have to do is sell 2,000 cars and they will be profitable. <laughs> yeah. And I go, Nancy, you know that's not the way it's going to work. You know that's not how it's going to play out, right? It's, you know... There are going to be all sorts of hiccups. It's going to take much longer. It's going to be way more expensive. And she said, oh, I, you know, I think it's really, it's, I think it's a great investment opportunity. I said, okay, good luck. So <laughs> she got in, she invested and I didn't. And, wow. you know, and the, and the, the, the fact of the matter was I was absolutely right. I was absolutely right <laughs> that, you know, the check, if I had written a check, for that round. So this is before Elon Musk. All right. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, so I, actually, Elon Musk was an investor. He was a co-investor in this round, um, but it was the original founding team. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and again. And what you know, made the eventual difference then? Uh, well, what made the difference actually? What made the difference was got you know what made the difference was Elon Musk. Right. So Tesla, you know, went bankrupt you know, essentially almost went bankrupt three times. So it turned out, it did turn out that um, had I written the check for that round and then had, if I had sold at the IPO, I would have lost money. Right. Um, now, if I had not sold at the IPO, you know, okay, life would be different. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I can but, imagine that we can, we can fill a whole interview with, with, uh, uh, opportunities that you jumped in on and it did become successful also. <laughs> Thank uh, you. Yes, of course. Right. So, <laughs> But I can, yeah. well, I, I can't really imagine, but kind of how mm -hmm. that must feel for you, like looking back. Uh, ah, you know, I mean, yeah. right. There are plenty of those that go both ways. Yes. But, yeah, but my, my wife has not forgiven me, but <laughs> <laughs> I somehow managed to cope. <laughs> So, um, so how I, are we doing? I've, yeah, we're, we're uh, getting, uh, I have a final question for you. Yeah. If you have one tip to give to tech entrepreneurs that are trying to start a new venture during times like these, what would it be? Um, 
so the um, so uh, you know for every um, it's true it whether or not we're going through a COVID crisis, um, but it's especially true right now. The the tip that I you know share with all entrepreneurs is. Uh, you know, it seems obvious, but you, but it's, but it's extremely rare. You have got to figure out a way to stand out. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so this is a, this is a workshop I do called getting to wow. And the whole point, the whole point is that as an industry, we do a terrible job of coaching entrepreneurs on how to pitch. And mainly what we do is we coach them on constructing a logical argument that sort of lays out sort of all of the elements of a business that can succeed. And yes, you have got to have that. But just because you have high confidence that you have the logic down for how to build a company that will succeed doesn't mean that you're going to get the attention of investors mm-hmm. or of even customers. What you've got to figure out is how to get the investor to say, wow, that's amazing. Really? You can do that? <laughs> or to get the customer to say, wow, right? Yeah. I've never seen anything like that before. You've got to figure out what is your wow? What is your wow? It's not good enough to be a better you know, storage device or even a faster chip or even a, um, you know, more efficient database or a easier to use application. You've got to create the experience that you are, you know, sort of 10 times better, that what you have is something amazing and incredible. Right. So, if, and generally, and almost always, that is associated with having a compelling value proposition. And way too little time is spent by entrepreneurs and pitch coaches focusing on what is the compelling value proposition. I mean, they talk about, you know, they talk about problems and solutions and team and technology and IP and go-to-market strategy and financials. But the only thing that matters in being a successful company is that you have a compelling value proposition. I shouldn't say it's not the only thing, but it is the necessary thing. Yeah. In order to succeed, you have to have a compelling value proposition. Um, And then, and then you have to do everything else well. Right. But, but it, it doesn't, it doesn't work. well, and you don't have a compelling value proposition, right? You're never going to break through because there's so much noise out there. And so entrepreneurs assume that the world is a meritocracy, that we investors, we investors will gravitate toward the best ideas. And, you know, the reality is there's just so much noise out there. It's hard for us to find the best yeah. ideas and especially so right now can, right and so unless you can really stand out unless you can really in you know in in a 20 second literally i'm serious 20 second package you've got to get the investor to say wow i gotta track these guys down you know it can't be buried in a 56 slide deck right i mean it's it's got to be 20 seconds wow and, and so that's, you know, that's my advice to entrepreneurs. You've got to find your wow yeah. and you've got to lead with your wow. Every time you talk about your company, it's gotta be, you know, in 20 seconds, you gotta get the person who's listening to say, wow, really, really? That's amazing. How do you do that? Right. You gotta get to wow. So yeah. that's my, that's my advice to every entrepreneur. Makes especially it, especially in these times yeah that makes a ton of sense especially now there's just so such an overload of information every on every spectrum that that, that uh right. highly right. applies 
Uh, well, Bill, I want to thank you so much for your time and sharing your expertise and uh, experience. Really appreciate that. Um, My pleasure. Great thank fun. You. I wish I wish you and and all of your listeners, you know, the greatest success. Um, and uh, and if anybody wants to know how to find me, you know, you can find me uh, pretty easily if you you know go to the garage website um, and uh, and on Twitter and every place else as well. So perfect. Well, okay. for people who, who haven't already found you yet and know the way, we'll okay. also put a link down in the, in the description to your website okay. and your social media. Thanks again, okay. Bill.